Um, this morning, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, as we're going to be looking at this morning. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. Continue on in our study of the book of 1 John, chapter 3, verse 11, John writes, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever, uh, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Father, it is our desire to see in your word, your holy commands, that you might reveal to us something true of the nature of who you are, that we might this morning get a glimpse, Father, of that powerful truth that changes the hearts of your people. And Lord, as we look into the word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate this and, and that you would open our minds and our hearts to know Christ. Do a work for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, teach us. Teach us, Father. And help us this morning in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, listen. As we read here in John, we read about this idea of hate. And as we look around, we all see hate closing in around us all the time. We read it in the news. This week, you all know that a hateful man walked into a movie theater unsuspectingly with an automatic rifle, a weapon, and he opened fire on innocent people as they're sitting in the theater watching a movie. A hateful act that took two lives this week. Or what about hate-filled videos that we're all watching about that are circulating a, a genocidal acts of murdering unborn children and then selling the body parts of these unborn children on the market for a profit? Hate is shrouding the minds and the hearts of the culture all around us. Hate of family, when lawmakers deny any gender distinction within, within the family, within marriage. So as Christians, um, you're probably like me, sometimes we easily feel like we're losing the, a battle. 
a real war. And you may be even increasingly nervous. If you're a parent like me, you might be increasingly nervous about the future that your world and the world that your kids are going to grow up in, right? That there might not be any real decency or anything that we know of honor in our society. But while that's true, it could be that we're easily being distracted by this moral madness and this, these decaying values we see all around us. We might be being distracted from a very real and powerful hate that's in this room today. And John wants us to understand how hate is at work in a, very, in a much more deceptive way. So as we look here at the letter of 1 John, we've been looking at different tests. And these tests are there to help us understand whether we should stand in condemnation or whether we should stand in confidence. Apparently, as Pastor Chad and Jason have already discussed in the last teachings, which you can listen to online, there's been these Gnostic heretics invading the inside of the church They've been pulling the wool over the eyes of the other church members. These Gnostic heretics, they've been claiming to have new and private revelations from God that stand outside of the apostles and the prophets. They have these revelations that stand outside of Scripture and they, they, it's really changing the truth about the character and the nature of God. And so consequently, there was a distortion taking place about the way that they were loving one another. So, so I want you to hear this as John is writing to us. That bad belief does lead people towards bad behavior. Did you catch that? And John believes that. Against popular belief, John does not believe, as you'll hear this floating around a lot right now, that you can somehow separate the creeds from the deeds. That somehow the doctrine and the duty can stand apart from one another. John seamlessly ties these together. See, Christian conduct is not the grounds of our salvation, but it is the evidence of it. A love for God, a love for God, a love for his obedience, obedience to his commandments is a necessary fruit of true belief. So John in the letter expects us to ask the question. I want you to catch this. He's expecting us to ask the question, am I a real Christian? Am I a real Christian? And in many circles, it's just not popular to do that anymore. It's just not very nice, right? But John wants us to ask that question. And he gives us these diagnostic tests to examine that by. And so we've already looked at two of those tests. And you'll have to go listen to online to Chad and Jason. But the first one was a doctrinal test. The doctrinal test. Should you have confidence? I'm sorry, you should have confidence if you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You should have confidence if you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The doctrinal test. The second test we looked at was the moral test. You should have confidence if you live a righteous life in obedience to God's commands. And now John gives us tests um, 
to show us that we might know, and chapter 5 says that we might know and we might have confidence that do you love God? Do you love his commands? And if you don't, that you, it might actually be some sort of road marker for you. That you're standing in a way of death, a death to God and darkness of hate, his, of his commandments. So I want us to look back here at chapter 3, verse 11, and start here with the final test. But before we look at the final test, I just want us to pause and consider how John is repeatedly using throughout his letter a phrase. And this phrase helps anchor us back in the truth. And he's using it over and over throughout his letter. The phrase is right here at the beginning of verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. Now John tells us later in chapter 4 verse 6 that those who are truly in God listen to the words of the prophets and the apostles. Chapter 4 verse 6 John writes, we are from God, whoever knows God listens to us, whoever is not from God does not listen to us, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, John has penned this letter, and it's included in the New Testament. So when he says they have not listened to us, he's referring to that of the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament passed down to the New Testament, New Testament apostles. They have a different authority. It's one we should listen to, we should go to, and that's where John wants to draw us back. John is indicating that you have heard from the beginning that they have actually already received the gospel. They've heard this gospel message. And earlier in his letter, he was reminding them also to hold fast to the message of the gospel, the already heard, passed along to the history of of us, the church. John wants us to stay grounded. And so we see in 1 John 1, chapter 1, verse 5, John uses this reminder to stay in the message. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light And in him is no darkness at all. So first, God is light. And truth is found in the light of God in Jesus Christ. And John tells us again in 1 John 2, verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So here John is talking about life, abiding in life. And God is life. He's light and he's life. And life is given to us through his son. Light and life, light and life, doctrine and duty, creeds and deeds are inextricably linked to one another. Those who truly abide in the light of God, in his son Jesus Christ, are those who possess his life. And so, John says in chapter 2, verse 6, the result of that is this, that we walk in the same way in which he walked, Jesus. Now, John Stott, a pastor theologian, who I'm going to just be honest, we've ripped a lot of this outline out of, okay? So, John Stott, he says a really good thing about the way these come together. He says, the gospel does not change. The truth about the person of Jesus Christ and about Christian conduct is unalterable. In both doctrine and ethics, 
we must go right back to the beginning and inquire what the apostles originally taught and their first converts both had and heard. So now let's move on to the test that we'll be looking at today, the third and final test. We're going to be given confidence in our salvation in the social test. So we had the moral test, excuse me, the doctrinal test, the first test, the moral test, the second test, and now we're going to look at the third test, the social test. Here's the confidence John wants us to have. If we love other Christians. So do you love God's people? And that's what John wants us to look at today. And he says here in chapter 3, verse 11, that this test starts with a divine command. A divine command. Then we're going to go on and look at a unique contrast. And then lastly, we're going to be looking at the necessary cure. So a divine by, it's divine by command. This love that he's going to show us for each other is first divine by command. It's then unique by contrast. And then it's necessary for a cure. So let's look at the command. And I want to start at the Old Testament. And looking at the command of this love the command to love one another. And I want you to look with me at Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to look at verses 16 through 18. So look at chapter 19 of Leviticus. Turn your Bibles there with me. Right, out of, right after the book of Exodus. Leviticus 19. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, before we go down further and look at the divine command, to love one another, let's first stop and look at the introduction that God speaks through Moses to his people. God's divine commands are analogous to his holy character. God's commandments are actually a revelation of God's holy character, of who he is. So the first thing we must start with is the idea that the commands come from him and his character. Holiness is something of a benefit and a command. See, holiness is God setting apart a people for himself. There's the benefit. And it is God's people setting themselves apart for him. And so there's a command and a benefit. We tend to treat commandments as though they're sort of kind of like an option, right? Like a, a, a good suggestion, um, if you're a parent, you can kind of relate to this, right? You tell, your, you tell your child, little Johnny, hey, Johnny, would you please take out the trash? And little Johnny looks at you and kind of rolls his eyes and groans and kind of huffs and puffs. and Do I have to? And then he says something like, well, maybe, or I'll try, or man, I can't right now because I'm doing this, Right? 
And honestly, in some ways, as a parent, because you asked it that way, you kind of almost like asked it like an option, right? Hey, Johnny, could you please do this? You weren't really saying, could you please do this? You're being a little bit deceptive there. You were really saying, Johnny, take the trash out. But we treat the divine commandments of God just much like a child treats their parent when they're asked to do something, don't we? Hey, if I get around to it, maybe I'll do that. Maybe it's a good idea, or maybe this is a better idea. But that's not how God's commandments work. God's commandments are not optional because they actually reflect to us something of Him. And we were designed and created to live in His image. That's our, that's our design, is to be reflectors of God's holiness. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question, chap, uh, uh, question 1, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a Protestant confession of faith in the Reformation period that was written, says this, What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, right? So a few of your lips I saw moving there. How do we know if we enjoy God? How do we even know if we're enjoying the holiness of God? Because we're living in obedience to what God loves. And what God loves in Scripture is sometimes actually told to us by what God hates, by negation. So let's look at later on in chapter 19 here, the commandment of loving one another. And look at chapter 19, verse 16 through 18. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So being holy starts by hating what God hates and loving what God loves. So what does God hate? Well, God hates slandering. You know, slanderers. Those who love to defame other people, to cast aspersions about them, the denigrating ways that we use our lips and our words to somehow distort what people really are. He hates, God hates lying, and he hates walking in dishonesty. How many lies have you told in your life? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, if I just said, hey, can you Write down 5% of the lies you've told in your whole life. Could you even get that much of it down? Probably not. Think of all the ways that we do. God hates men who seek out to administrate justice themselves. And don't rely upon God for the vengeance that God says is His. God hates that. God hates murder. Okay? We go, oh yeah, we knew that one. But how about this one? God hates hate in the heart. Did you catch that in those verses? God hates the hate that's in our heart. Now that just puts things on a whole different level, doesn't it? Because it's one thing to hate our actions, those things we do. But it's another thing to get down into my attitudes. To get down into the, my thoughts, the intents of my heart. And in case you somehow thought that 
you know, God in the Old Testament is just really, really rough on us, and Jesus is kind of weak on the law, well, let's look at what Jesus says about these very passages. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 22 with me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 22. And I want you to notice it starts off by saying, Jesus commands, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So when Jesus walks through this list that we just kind of read in Leviticus, he starts with the tough one, doesn't he? Murder. Then he kind of comes down into like insults. And then it's like, hey, dude, you're a fool. How many times have you walked, driven down the road like, ah, idiot, you know, thought it, said it, whatever. So let's look at, because let's realize that Jesus is first of all talking to his disciples. The audience is his disciples here, okay? And he's telling his disciples something about themselves. He's asking this intriguing question. That is, would, would other people characterize you as an angry, an angry person? Would you be characterized as an angry person if other people were writing a little bit of a biography about you? Well, Jesus says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Do you hear that? Everybody that's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Do you regularly insult and criticize people? Jesus says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Do you slander other people? Do you, do you say, fool, idiot, that guy's stupid? Jesus says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, is Jesus weak on the law? Seems to me he's, he's much weightier in the matters of the law. I heard a guy years ago say this, and it just stuck with me. But when you hear Jesus with the law, Jesus is like Moses on steroids. He's not lighter in the ways of the law. In fact, he, he increases it. He makes it even weightier. Did you notice as the list is... Um, is descending in what seems like the deeds of men, from murder to insults to, to just saying, you fool. He's ascending in the judgment of those men all the way to hellfire, hellfire at the end. So why would Jesus do that? Why do we see the severity and seriousness of the punishment in comparison to this type of sins that are being committed? Well, because Jesus seemingly in adding weight to God's law in the Old Testament we see through Moses, he is showing us something of even more true of trueness about God's weighty character. He, he's showing us that God's glory and his holiness is ever increasing, examining our hearts in a much deeper way as we grow in him by showing us how far we fall short of his glory. Now, I know that seems odd to some of us, to think that there is still purpose for the law in God, for God's people. 
But remember, we were reading about God's people in Leviticus 19, weren't we? And we're now reading his teachings to the disciples there on the Mount of Beatitudes. There evidently seems to be a place for the law for the believer as much as there is for the unbeliever. Jesus wants us to understand the law and its convicting power. There's a use for it. And he wants us to see and understand how hideous, how ugly our hearts are when they lie in hatred. And that when comparing ourselves to God, how holy, how amazing God is. So Jesus gives us the command, love one another. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, there is he's washing the disciples' feet. He says, a new commandment I give to you, you love one another, that you love one another. Jesus encourages his disciples with God's law to walk in a way that loves God, is obedient to him in his holiness. So as we contrast and consider the third test, love and hate, love for other Christians, we must consider that this is a divine command. Command. Now, the second point I want to leave you with today is that we should consider how John is going to show us that love is in a unique contrast. It's not only a divine command, but it's a unique contrast. In this contrast, John compares the hideous, self-serving heart, the hateful heart, with God's self-sacrificing heart of love. The contrast is a hideous, self-serving heart with a self-sacrificing heart of love. He uses two characters in the scriptures to do this. The first man of hate is self-seeking. The second man of love is self-sacrificing. So let's look at this contrast. Verses, go back to 1 John with me. 1 John chapter 3, and look at verses 12 and verses 15 with me. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and he murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother righteous. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So as we look at these two men, and we're now we're looking at Cain, the first man, the man of hate, we're told about Cain in the way that he murdered his brother. And who was his brother? Abel. You guys remember the story, right? Genesis chapter 4. If you don't know the story, these are the two sons that came from Adam and Eve. And these two sons had two offerings. They were made to God. Abel brought an offering of his flock, and Cain brought an offering of his crop. And if you remember that Abel's offering was accepted by God, and Cain's offering was rejected by God. And Cain became uh, murderously bitter in his heart towards his brother Abel, and he struck out And the word murdered means violent. It's it's this violent sense that Cain struck out against his brother. It was a bloody act. Killed him. So as we talk about hate, let's look at first the origin of hate from these verses that we have right in front of us. The origin of hate, 1 John writes there, we should not be like Cain. 
We should not be like Cain. Now, now what was the origin of Cain's hate? Cain's hate, his evil hate, lays within his heart, doesn't it? The jealousy, the pride, the things that were in Cain. And evil is harboring in the heart. It's there in the heart harboring. Before it ever even manifests itself in evil actions. See, we have a tendency, don't we, to really blame things on the situations around us rather than to look first at our hearts. We say, well, that guy made me do that. Or he made me mad. Or she makes me jealous. But the truth is, you brought to that situation what was already in your heart. And that's what Cain did. James tells us this. James in chapter 3, verse 14 through 16, he writes, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, it's unspiritual, it is demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. The rebel heart, which is jealous and murderous, it doesn't come from the outside broken world. It comes from the inside sinful heart. And it's this lawless heart. It's the original heart, that which was given to us in the fall of Adam. We were each born with that heart, the heart of Cain. And it's a heart against God. It hates God. So let's start with the origin. First is you. You. And I know, man, oh, ouch, okay? But the origin is first you. But it does even go further than that. It goes further than the root in you. And now James points to the very thing that John points out in his letter. James points out that the origin of hate is demonic. It's demonic. Now, I bet none of you ever felt like the, the anger in your heart or the hate that rose up in a certain situation was some, some kind of demonic influence, right? But James is pointing out that it's from the evil one, and that's exactly what J- John writes of Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So it's demonic. It's from the devil. Now, earlier in chapter 3, of John's letter, we saw the contrast between two seeds, the, the seeds of two families, we'll say, the children of God who practice righteousness, and in today's context, what we're talking about today, therefore would practice what? Love. Practice love. Or the children of the devil, which practice sinning, therefore they're practicing hate. They, they, they want to be good at it. These are two children that come from, then what later we're told in verse 10, two fathers. One are the children of God, one are the children of the devil. These are two fathers. And Jesus in John chapter 8 says this, doesn't he? He says, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So here's what the family traits of Satan look like. You want to have confidence or do you want to have condemnation? Should you have confidence or should you have condemnation? 
Look at the family traits. What is the family traits of the devil? He, he has murderous, murderous thoughts and heart that's what? It does not stand in the truth. It resides in darkness. It does not love what God loves and hate what God hates. It's the opposite. It loves lies. It loves to tear down other people who are made in God's image. Right? That's the traits of a liar, of a murderer, of a child of Satan. So now that we've seen the origin of hate and of the de- is the devil, what are the characteristics of that hate? Well, John writes that whoever does not love, in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 3, he writes, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So the first characteristic is that hate reveals those who still stand in death. It reveals darkness. You're still standing dead. These verses reveal this important truth to us, that all men were born in Adam, and they're abiding in spiritual death. That sin separated Adam and all of mankind, cast all of mankind into darkness, into evil, into hate. All men are born haters. They hate God and they hate others. They are lawless, they are opposed to Him. And John wants the reader to evaluate those who abide in death, those who stand still in death. So as we wrap up, looking at Cain, the first man, I want to ask you, which one are you characterized by this? Is this the overwhelming sense of your heart and life? Because Cain is a prototype of a man without God. Paul tells us this truth of what men without God look like when they lie under the curse of their own hate. When they lie under the curse of their hate. He says in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32, he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. They are foolish. They are faithless. They are heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve death or to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Cain hated his brother. He deserved to die. And that's where we're to look today in this realm of anger and hate. So Cain's hatred is a portrait to us. So as we move on now to the second man, let's consider the origin and characteristics of the second man in our contrast. The second man is the man of love, and he is self-sacrificing. Self-sacrificing. The first man was self-serving, but the second man in love is self-sacrificing. 1 John 3.16, John writes there, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. 
John indicates by the phrase, by this we know, that it's a way to understand what love, love looks like opposed to hate. So where does, where does self-sacrificing love come from? Where, where, where is its origin? Just as we asked of hate. Well, in 1 John 4, 7, John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So, love originates, it comes from God. He defines love. So then, what are its characteristics? What are the characteristics of the love of God? Well, John tells us, doesn't he? First John 3.16, he says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. But the first thing we would say about the characteristic of love is that it demands that you give up your life and that you lay it down. Do you hear that? The love of God demands that you die, that you give up your life. He goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 13, he says this. Earlier we saw, right after uh, Cain, he says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. It hates you. So not only does, is love willing to die, to give everything away, to, to lose all of itself, but love is willing to be hated. It's unique because it's willing to be ridiculed. It's, it's, willi- it's willing to have others put you away, slander you, murder you, do all the very things that we looked at in juxtaposition to hate. The love that is willing to not seek vengeance for itself, but rely upon God when it, when it gives its life. And that's, that's a difficult love, would you, not, would you not say? Would you not agree with me that most of what we're doing day to day is to self-preserve our life, to keep it, to keep all our goods, to save our money, to save our, our, our stuff? But this love is willing to give everything away. So self-serving hate originates in Satan, and the characteristics are murderous. And self-serving love originates in God, and its characteristics are life-giving. So as we've looked at how this love has a divine command, and then we've looked at it has a unique contrast, let's talk now about its cure. cure. It's necessary for our cure. See, God offers a cure For those who fail his commandments. For those who hate like Cain. Those who stand in darkness. God has a cure. You you should not have been feeling as I was going through those things. Oh man, I really got it down. This was meant to set you low. You, there's no way out. It entraps you, doesn't it? Because you feel like, boy, you were fine, John, in action. I don't go around stabbing people or shooting people or doing things like that. But man, when you got in the heart, I was done. Because my heart sets me low every time before God, doesn't it? And the law does do that. God offers a cure not only for those who hate but for those who fail to be self-sacrificing in the way that love demands. So as I went through love, you probably in that said, man, I don't know. I don't want to lay my life down, John. 
I want to I wanna keep it. I don't know about being hated by others. I don't even like the guy at work in my next cubicle, cubicle to not like me. I bring him candy and flowers. should make life good because I don't like it when people are mad at me. So we often fail, don't we? But God gives a cure. How do you fare today, however, as you look at these things? Are you given a better sense of confidence or are you given a, a much greater sense of condemnation? Then you must run to Christ. And John inserts the remedy for that in the middle between Cain and Christ. Look with me at verses 14, or verse 14. He puts the cure right between Cain and Christ. And I don't think that's by mistake, by the way. He says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You see, right in the center here, John uh, puts resurrection. He puts resurrection. And he describes exactly what Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, when he says, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So here, in the very middle, we're told the, the, the cure for our our problem. We're told that we must be born again. That in order to be taken out of darkness to life, we must be resurrected. And there's only one way towards that. That is Jesus' life, His death and resurrection. The ways that in every way He satisfied God, not only in action, but in heart. Ever present to say, I'm here to do your will, Father. And always accomplishing that in places where we fail all the time. Jesus is necessary. He's absolutely necessary. Because you are, not, you are not Christ. You are Cain. You are Cain. You get that, right? And so there's only one way out. There's only one way out. It's resurrection. The power of God to raise lost sinners. So today... I want to leave you with that. I want to leave you with this cure. This cure, this way out of Adam, this way out of Cain. And that way is Christ. And he says, we've passed over from death to life. And this is the gospel. He's quoting John chapter 5 verse 24. There in the gospel of John, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Whoever hears my words and believes me, whoever has trusted in faith in the work that I have done on your behalf, says Jesus, this man, this woman can be assured to know that he has passed out of death and into life. He will not face the judgment. Isn't that good news? We, if, listen, this ought to make us run to him and keep us in him. And the law is there to kind of whip us back. When we get going thinking that it's on our own, the law is there to drive you back to the one that it drove you to in the beginning. Or maybe you're just a person here this morning and you realize that hate has overwhelmed you to the extent that there really is no way out of that. And you are right. If you have not come to Christ, your heart is likely ruled by anger and hate. Because the curse has been set upon you. And today, if you don't flee to Christ, you'll lie in your hate. 
There will be no book you can read. There will be no prayer magically that you can pray that Christ must do on your behalf to deliver you from that hate Cain heart. So I plead with you today, examine yourself in light of the law. Examine yourself and let it let the law reveal to you something of God and his truth. That he wants to love us and save us from that came. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that John reveals to us this divine love in a divine command, and in Christ we see that apart from our Savior Jesus, there is no way out of hate. We are still left as Cain, dead in the grave, vile, murderous, slandering, constantly looking for ways that we can tear apart the lives of other people. God, we pray that you would save us this morning from that, that evil came, and that you would give to us your Son, Christ, and that you would help us model what it looks like to live for him, to live for him, to give up our goods, to love our brother when we see who is in need. Lord, as we're even seeing our brothers and sisters Lord, leave this church to do a work of missions of bringing other brothers and sisters who we don't even know yet into the fold to become a lamb of God, to become, to become a child of God, one of your sheep. And God, it's through the great work of saving you did in Christ that you're sending these missionaries out and they're leaving all their goods, willing to die, willing to be blasphemed and willing to be hated But Lord, show us how we might love them. Show us how we might give of our goods in ways to support them and help them. And Lord, help us be ever-presently aware of each other's needs in this church. And keep us, Lord, in your Son. Lord, bring us to a living faith this morning. Bring the dead heart alive. Thank you for the great work of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.